Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to My Church Online. Uh, Pastor Caleb here. I want to welcome you if you're new, if you're here for the first time, second time. Uh, hey, we're just glad that you're here and hope that you stick around for a lifetime with us and find your fit, find the family, and be part of the family of God here with us. Hey, the truth is that today, I'm excited. I'm going to delve into a series of talks over the next several weeks as we prepare into uh, what is going to be our 10-year uh, anniversary celebration in just a few short weeks. I want to encourage you guys to mark the date and to save that time out uh, and be with us, with us over the next several weeks as we celebrate. Because, um, hey, 10-year marker, that's a big deal. And, uh, you know, as we've been preparing for this 10-year marker, I've been asking God, what are you saying? And I feel like we're really entering into day one of the next decade. And as I look forward, man, I have a lot of faith. And the reason I, I'm so faith-filled is not because I'm putting faith in any one thing, but I'm putting my faith in God. And I'm putting my faith in the resources that he's blessed us with in this last 10 years and how far he's brought us. Man, as I've reflected and gone over our beginning days, our start and the steps and the stages of our journey so far, can I just say, it's been actually mind-blowing to see how far God has taken us. From those humble beginning days in the living room to now, you know, filling out auditoriums, now back in a living room of sorts. Isn't it kind of funny that we're back to our beginning days? And I feel like God is saying just that. Go back to the beginning and rebuild a new decade with a whole lot more resource, a whole lot more faith, a whole lot more wisdom that have been learned along the way, a whole lot more, you know, people and finance and just a foundation from which to operate. I feel like, man, the word over this next season is really going to be rebuild, reboot, get ready and be prepared. Uh, I feel like there's a, a preparing, a, a rebuilding of preparing the people of God for what God wants to do. And so what I really fe felt to do is to really take us back in so many ways to the beginning and to revisit some of the old messages and the, the themes that we preached on that really set the culture for who we are. Because my prayer is that we'd never lose sight of who we are and where we're going. And so, hey, if you're with me, I would love to preach to you about the scandalous grace of God today. No doubt it is the, the central theme of the entire Bible itself. Uh, it, it really, when we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about the person of Jesus, who is grace embodied, he, who came, according to John 1, uh, in, in the fullness of of grace and truth. And so, uh, you know, when you cut into Jesus, you cut into grace itself. And so I want to talk to you about not a doctrine, not a teaching. I want to talk to you about the person of Jesus here this morning and really unveil some of what is so good about him. You know, the Bible calls the grace of God, it calls it the gospel of God's grace in the book of Acts. And I don't know about you, if you knew this or not, but the book, uh, the gospel, the word gospel, it means eugelia. It's the word we get eugelia. You comes from the word we get eulogy from. It means to speak well of somebody or to speak good of someone. Oftentimes we speak a eulogy on when someone has passed and we speak well about our fondest memories and reminisce about how awesome they were in character. And the reality is eugelia means good. You, good. Gelia means news. And so we've got two root words, good news, brought together. And when we speak about the gospel, we're speaking about the good news of God's grace. Did you know that God loves you, loves me, loves all of us, whether we're, we're, you know, black or white, whether we're, you know, we're Hispanic, or it doesn't matter our skin color, it doesn't matter our orientation, it doesn't matter, you know, where, what part of the world we come from, and we call the rich class or the poor, it doesn't matter where we fall, you know, what, you know, pedigree or stock we come from, the reality is, is that God loves us apart from what we do. The scandal of God's grace. What is so offensive of the gospel that even became for the Jews a stumbling stone, the Bible says, is the fact that, hey, as Jesus said it, even prostitutes and, 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 and uh, people that were 
had colorful lifestyles, were entering the kingdom of God before the religious class. And he was saying that, and that cut to their hearts. And it was so offensive. Now, what was so offensive? What, was, what caused them to stumble? It was the fact that people could enter in the kingdom of God apart from what they did. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans declares that, that God, he justifies the ungodly. I know you might be sitting here as shocked as I am to realize that God does not justify the godly. He justifies. In other words, he declares righteous. That's what the word justified means. To be justified in punching you in the face, let's say. Okay? Uh, I wouldn't do that. Okay? But this is just... Purely an illustration to prove a point. Justification means like if you were justified in doing something, you were right in doing so. The word justified, biblically speaking, means to be declared or made right and righteous. And so God, he declares righteous to, to, to himself. He makes righteous with himself. The ungodly. See, friend, I don't know if you've had an incredible year or a really horrible year. I don't know if you feel like, man, I was just dominating or I was like totally t diminishing. I was falling apart. The reality is that it's not about whether you did or you didn't, whatever that means. God loves you exactly the way you are, for who you are, apart from what you do. I don't know about you, but that, I take great comfort in that knowledge. Hey, if you don't believe me, let me read you some scriptures to prove the point that God, Romans 4, 5, I believe it is, justifies the ungodly. I mean, what an incredible thought. I thought I had to live right and, and do right and live morally. And these are all good ideas, by the way. I would definitely, you know, say, hey, you should do your best in life. But they are not the, the, the foundation from which God accepts us, which God blesses us. No, we are blessed on account of Jesus, friend. Galatians 3, 9 and 10 says we are blessed on account of the seed of Abraham. And what is that? It's Jesus, friend. All right. So let, let me I'll just show you Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. We're going to read this together. And I'm going to prove to you over this, the length of this talk here today that God loves you exactly who you are for where you are. No matter what you did, no matter where you've come from, um, God is with you in this moment and loves you. And he's not holding your past against you. He's not holding it over your head and shaming you. No, the Bible tells us clearly that God so loved, John 3, 16, the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life with him, in him, sorry. To believe, whoever should believe in him should not perish, shall not perish, but experience everlasting life in him. Can I just say something? We've, we've swapped the word believe in so many ways for the word behave. And I think that in so many ways, we've created a culture, a society where it's all about behavior modification. Behave right and, you, and you'll be accepted. But the Bible doesn't say to behave right. It says to believe right. To believe right. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. To believe right. Set your thoughts upon the Lord. Hey, hey, can I just say, our, the Bible doesn't say that God so loved those who behave right. He says those who believe right. Those who believe in the Son of God. See, Jesus said it very clearly in John 6, 20, but what is the work of God but to believe in the one whom God has sent? See, friend, I don't know if you tirelessly found yourself going through all this religious rhetoric, religious, like, you know, routines of trying to do religious kind of work, morality and holiness and all these things, which again, I want to emphasize, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I strongly promote doing the best we can through the, the empowerment of the Spirit of God, because it's God who works in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. We'll get to that in a moment. But what I am saying is the, the foundation for us to go and be empowered to live after godly, uh, godly lifestyle is, is to believe right. See, the way you get into God's good, good books, the way that you get into uh, favor with God and the blessing of God, the way you get right with God is not by doing 
self-efforts. It's not by trying to live a holy and moral life and to be, you know, morally sound according to whatever standards you hold to. The reality is the Bible tried with 10 commandments to show us that we have no ability to save ourselves. 10 commandments, uh, you know, the, the solid 10 there, you know, they basically were written to show you and I that we have no ability to save ourselves. And we'll get more to that in a moment. But I want to read something that Paul wrote in the Gospels. And it actually, it says in the book of Philippians, uh, in the epistles, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, I want you to understand when Paul says the word rubbish there, um, we think we're from England, you know, and this is the word choice they use to trans translate this word into English, but it was actually a swear word is the word for, you know, poop and it, otherwise known as, you know what? All right. He literally dropped a swear word here. And it was a very kind of like scandalous word that he choice that he used. And he says, I, I, I've lost everything and count them all as poop that I may gain Christ and be found in him. See, because he didn't prop up his good works or these self efforts or this morality or this holiness. No, he says, I, I've let all that, all my own efforts and, and myself be put aside that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having get this my own righteousness. Did you notice that? Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Ah, you see, when we try to establish getting right with God by what we do, let's say it's, you know, living a holy life, a moral life, living a life that says, yeah, and I'm going to attain, I'm going to attain a level of righteousness by what I do through adhering to a system of law of do's and don'ts. Thou shalt not. The Ten Commandments of thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, like 10 times, right? You live after that and allow your life to be governed by that and thinking that by living after that, I can get right with God, you are sadly mistaken. You wouldn't be the first person to do so, of course. You'd be among many people who have sucked air on this side of heaven, who have misinterpreted the purpose of the law of God and thought, man, if I just live after that, if I do my best and, and, and never fail any, any you know, letter of it, and if I can just maintain it and do as best I can, God will then accept me and I will achieve for myself a level of right standing with God. But the Bible says it very clearly that no, righteousness is not something that you ought to achieve though many have attempted and failed. Look at Israel throughout the old, entire Old Covenant of the Old Testament, and you see how miserably they failed all over the place, falling over, over the face and then and trying to establish getting right with God by what they do and then getting punished for falling short every single time. See, right standing with God is not something that you achieve. It is actually something the Bible declares that you receive. Totally different. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, and, I'll, and I'll, just, I'll even read it for you for a moment, but it says... Therefore, just as one man, Adam, sinned in the beginning, and death came through that sin, and thus spread to all men, because all sinned, um, we all become sinners. Now watch this, verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, that one man being Adam in the beginning, everybody was made a sinner. So as by one man's obedience, that man being Christ now, who came to right the wrongs of Adam in the beginning, which we'll get to over the course of these several weeks, but Christ comes, and because of his obedience, not disobedience, but obedience to God, many will be made righteous. Did you know that you were a sinner and made a sinner? Get this. Not because you actually sinned, according to the Bible. I know. You're thinking, wait, what? I'm a sinner because, I mean, I, I do wrong things. Yeah, you do screw up here and there. You do sin. But you do not sin because uh, you're a sinner. You, you, sin, or, you sin because Adam and Eve sinned. And they made you that way. A sinner. You see, 
And the Bible says that you're a sinner then, not because you necessarily sinned, sorry. And this is a major point I want to make because somebody out there tuning in right now is considering that looking over their own self and going, man, I'm a horrible, like, horrible person. I mean, I, I don't live up to the standards of God. You know, all have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, all have sinned and fallen short. I, I'm one of those people. I fall short all the time and I just want to do better, God. I want to do better. And you're like, you beat and berate yourself up because you'd always feel like you're never enough. You're like the rich young ruler that Jesus approached and said, you know, hey, follow me. And he says, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you think, yeah, believe, right? No, but he said, behave. Oh, you know what the law says. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And, the, and, the, and this young rich ruler looks at Jesus and says, well, all these things I've kept since the time I was young. And he goes, yeah, but one thing you lack, go sell all you have and come follow me. And it's easier, he says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It'd be easier to jump through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus responds with, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you don't have to do anything. You have to believe, not behave. But this guy thought he could behave his way into right standing with God, into the kingdom of God, into eternal life. And so God responds with 10 commandments, showing him that he had no ability to do so. And how many of you guys know, every time you respond with your own self-effort, your own ability to kind of save yourself by what you do, God will always look down at you and say, you're not enough. One thing you lack. I don't know about you, but I got to a place in my own life, maybe you're there today, where you're tired of hearing God say, man, I'm not enough. I feel like I'm never enough. I feel like I'm always drowning, just fighting to keep my head above water. Well, Jesus, this is the point. Our right standing with God, according to Paul in Philippians 3, says, I do not count on my own righteousness. I'm not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. And according to Romans 5, right standing with God, watch this, verse 17, it says, for by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of God's righteousness will reign through life through the one Jesus Christ. Hey, those who receive the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Righteousness, according to the Bible, is a gift. Your right standing with God is not something that you achieve. It's something that you receive on account of God giving it to you. It's a gift. It's not earned. In other words, gifts are never earned. Otherwise, they're not a gift. It's a paycheck. It's something you're entitled to. But that's not what the Bible declares our right standing with God. Righteousness is not something that you acquire or, or achieve. It is something you receive. It's not something you attain. It's something you obtain freely on account of Jesus dying on your behalf. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody out there, but this is a life-changing idea for somebody in this moment. This means that God is not holding you hostage to your humanity. He's not berating you with your past over your present saying you're not good enough. No, he's trying to help you understand that just like Paul, uh, that he, you'd say that you'd throw away all that self-effort, all those works, and that in all those, you know, sincere, you know, late nights trying to be good enough and just simply say, man, I'll throw all that aside that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, See, many people try to establish their own righteousness with God. Many people would be known by that in the church. They're called self-righteous people. I don't know if you've encountered any of those people who act a little self-righteous. Did you know that the book of Romans chapter 10, look at this. The, the, the Israelites were literally accused of trying to do this. Verses 1 to 4, it says, Brother, in my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. 
for I bear witness that they have zeal for God. I think that many of us, like the Jews of old, have a zeal for God, but it's sometimes it's based in our own ignorance because we don't know the scriptures, because we don't understand the gospel of God's grace and the, and the foundation from which we have a relationship with him. We think that we have to earn our place with God. We think we got to jump through these religious rhetoric and hoops to get in God's good books and to get right with him. But look what it says. It says, brethren, Israel, I desire that they might know God. I desire that they might be saved, Paul says. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 2. But not according to knowledge. I think that many of us can go through life sincere, but sincerely misled. We can have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant, check this, what were they ignorant of? Of God's righteousness, have sought to establish their own righteousness. I wonder if there's anybody here today who has even slipped into this slipstream of thought where you, you started to believe that you needed to get right with God by something that you do. Whether it be a, a sense of morality or living right or giving to the poor, or looking out for your neighbor. All of these things are, no one's going to argue, are great ideas and good things to do but not as the, the, the foundation, not the, uh, the thing to predicate your salvation upon. It's just not biblically accurate. See, the Jews missed out on what was freely being given to them because they sought to work for something that they were freely given. The Jews said, sought to establish their own right standing with God, righteousness. When I say righteousness, it simply could be interchangeable with right standing with God. They tried to get right with God by what they did, and as such, were ignorant to the, to the free right standing, the free righteousness that God was giving them on his, from him. Look at, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, what's that? The righteousness that comes from him, sought to establish their own righteousness, not having submitted to the righteousness that comes from God. For Christ, verse 4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, Jesus represents the end of our ability to try to work our way into heaven. A work our way into the right st standing with God. To work our way. And you can think, well, what does that mean? What does work look like? Well, ask yourself, what does a law philosophy look like? Man, I don't pray enough. So do you think if you pray more that God will love you more? I don't think that's the foundation for why we ought to be praying. And no, no doubt, praying's a great idea. Again, do you see how I've been saying that? All these things are good but don't ever think that you can get good in exchange for God. It's exactly what the lure of the law does to you and I. You say, what do you mean? That's what's so alluring about the law. That's what's so alluring about trying to work our way into God's good books. What do you say, what do you mean? Is the fact that we could do it ourselves apart from Jesus. Can I just ask you a question? If you could save yourself by what you do or you don't do, by either doing something or abstaining from another thing and living like, you know, the, the straight and narrow in that sense. If you could do that, then what need, have we ha what, what need do we have of Jesus in the first place? I mean, why did and would Jesus had, why would he have come if we could have saved ourselves? I mean, that would have been a great place for the angel Gabriel or Michael or somebody to show up in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, was praying, God, please, if there be any other way for these people, in other words, to save themselves apart from me having to go on the cross, let's explore the option. 
Do you guys remember that story in Matthew 26, right? And, and the reality is, is that that would have been a great segue, a great place. Cue the band. Okay, Gabriel, go in and tell him, great, we got a place. We know what we can do. Well, you know, after all, Jesus, we sent you to the Virgin Mary. You broke the bloodline of sin. We got you here living a virtuous life. But you know what? We don't need it. They can save themselves. Jesus would have tapped us and said, sweet, they can sort themselves. But how many of you guys know thousands upon thousands of years since the time of Adam until the present we have seen the opposite of that, that we have an inability to save ourselves. We, from the beginning, rely on God. And who do we think we are apart from our creator? We need him like we need air. And the reality is, is that Jesus in the garden wrestles with this idea of having to go to the cross, knowing full well the price that would have to be paid to make the likes of you and I free today to make us right with God once again, so that we're not separated from God on account of our sin, but now could walk holy with him, hand in hand like they were in the beginning, where Christ in so many ways in the Garden of Gethsemane could right the wrong that was made in another garden called the Garden of Eden. See, Jesus at the Garden of, of Gethsemane sweat blood and he redeemed us from the thing that the very thing that Adam was told from the sweat of your brow you will now work the land when Jesus sweat blood he redeemed us from having to work not going to Monday to your job I'm talking a spiritual kind of work where we think we need to do something to get right with God he redeemed us from work. This is why Hebrews 4 would tell us that it invites us to enter into the rest of God where we seize from our work because the gospel is an invitation to enter into the rest of God on account of Jesus and not have to work at our salvation, but now work out our salvation. Do you see the difference? We're not to work at it. We're there to work it out, not work on it, but to work it out. So Jesus, the night before he was crucified, wrestles with this idea of being crucified it'd be any other way now if there would be any other way if we could have established our right sitting with god on account of what you and i maybe did or we refrained from and didn't do and we could get right with god then why did jesus end up hanging on the cross you know friend he said but not my will but your will be done there was no other way we needed a savior because the, the the whole the whole purpose of a savior is to save you we needed someone to save us from our sin. And so Jesus died on a cross. And according to Galatians chapter 2, let me just turn to it real briefly. I think the best way to convince people of the messaging that I'm giving here today is just to simply read the Bible over and over again and quote as much scripture as possible so you understand that this is not just a good idea in Caleb's mind here today. Paul says, while we seek to be made right with... Uh, to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For I, if I build again those things which destroyed, I make, so let's, that's not going to make a lot of sense without context here. Verse 20, we'll go to verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, skin, I have lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, look at verse 21 now. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if right standing, righteousness with God comes through the law, in other words, doing anything out of our own self-efforts or works, then Christ died in vain. This is the point I'm trying to make with the last several minutes here. Is that if you and I could do something to save ourselves, then what need have we, ha what need have we of Christ? 
Why did he come in the first place? Why did he die in our place? If he died in our place, that only goes to show you that there was no ability for you and I to save ourselves. That Christ truly had and was required by God to, st to sit up on that cross with nails between his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns on his side, a spear in his, in his side, sorry, and, a, and, a, and a, thorn, a crown of thorns on his head. The reality is he went through that because there was no other way of saving you and I. And therefore, if we could save ourselves apart from Christ, then Christ died, according to the scripture, in vain. It was superfluous. It was redundant of him to go through that. Now imagine, imagine Christ, who you and I serve, walking up to him today in person, if we could just make him come here in the flesh for a moment. And you say, you know what, Jesus, I really appreciate what you did on the cross. Like, <gasps> struggling to get your last breaths and then declaring yourself, you know, committing your spirit to God and giving up the ghost and going through all of that where your bowels would have been exposed from your backside because of the lashings you received from the Romans 39, you know, 40 minus one, you know, several times over, uh, you know, getting the nails driven through your hands and feet. You know, I preach all that, but I think I got this. Could you imagine now how insulting that would be to Jesus and the sacrifice in which he committed? I'm actually, that's actually written in the Bible, this very conversation. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 on. It's how we, when we reject the sacrifice of Jesus, we insult the spirit of grace because we reject what he's done on our behalf. See, because Christ would have died in vain if we could save ourselves. And this is my point, friend. If Christ hung on the cross, my point that I'm working toward this morning is help somebody at the sound of my voice here today to recognize, friend, stop the religious rat race. You can stop here today. You can seize from the effort. You can breathe easy and allow the weight and the heaviness of the law's demand to come off of you to realize it's not your job to fulfill the law. Christ fulfills it for me. But you'd say, but didn't Jesus say in the book of Matthew that not one letter, not one, one jot of the letter of the law would pass away? He did say that. And, but he said, until it is fulfilled. Until it is fulfilled. Let's not just read half the verse. Let's read all of it. Right, class? And so Jesus says, hey, they said, did Jesus not say that not one part of the law would pass away? And even in the world to come? He goes, yes, he did say that. But he goes, until there was a contingency, it is fulfilled. And guess what? According to Romans chapter 1 to 4, Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law and therefore... You do not have to fulfill it. He has done it on your behalf. See, I don't know about you, but many of us see the law, it's like a demand, right? It demands righteousness from you, but grace actually gives you righteousness. The law says, thou shalt be righteous, be righteous, be righteous. Well, not lifting a finger to help you be righteous. Where Jesus offers us grace and says, here is righteousness. And I, through the power of my spirit, will enable you to live that righteousness out. What a concept. And so the point I'm trying to make is, with Paul, we didn't even get through the verse, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. But that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, he says, which is from God by faith. Did you see it? Do you see it as clearly now as, as maybe you didn't before, but you see it clearly now? There's a righteousness that the Jews tried to establish that was on their own 
that neglected to receive the righteousness that comes from God. There's two forms of righteousness. The righteousness that you do and the righteousness that God does. Friend, can I encourage you today to cease from your efforts and cease from works. Don't think you have to go through that religious rhetoric anymore and jump through those religious hoops and think, I got to do it, I got to do it, and weigh the burden of that. No, Jesus says, my burden is light. Law is heavy. Grace is light. And that's why Jesus says to me, are you tired? Are you worn out? Then come to me, Matthew 11, and I will give you rest. Hey, are you tired and worn out? Are you heavy laden and burdened? The Bible says in other translations, come and I will show you the unforced rhythms of my grace. Work with me and walk with me and I'll show you what it is. This unforced rhythms of my grace. You see, Jesus' burden is light. And I don't know about you, but a lot of people seem hungover. I don't mean like hungover. I mean like hungover, exhausted, bent over under the weight of the world on their shoulders, thinking that they got to perform this and do that under such great pressure today that I want to encourage you to say, friend, don't carry any undue, unnecessary pressure that is required of you. The Bible says that you do not need to save yourself. And I wonder what is driving and motivating your heart. Are you trying to be good enough for God? To prove yourself to God? Get the big enough house and the big enough thing so many people will look at you and say, man, well done. So that ultimately maybe you use the, the favor of the court, courting the praise of man to try to turn the favor of God toward you. I'm not sure what your motivations are. But all I'm trying to say is, is that my prayer for you is that you'd live light and travel light understanding that God loves you apart from what you do. See, Jesus came, friend, to make you and I right. It's not something we achieve. It's something we receive on account of him. Now watch this. Romans 3 and the message says, since we've compiled this long and sorry record of sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. You see, the law demands your righteousness, but God gives you righteousness and does it and performs it on your behalf. And so out of sheer generosity, the Bible says, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. See, right standing, according to Romans 5, and this one is a gift. Hey, even Isaiah 54, if you look at the last, you know, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Why? Because the, the Bible says that God declares, he says, because their righteousness, your righteousness comes from me. Or what about this one, Romans 6? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not yours. And all these things shall be added unto you. See, our righteousness, if you didn't notice, comes from God. And since we have compiled this long and sorry record of sinners, proved that we're utterly incapable of saving ourselves, out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess of sin that we were in and restored us to where we always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. You see, Galatians 2, it says, knowing that a man is declared right with God, uh, sorry this, uh, knowing that a man is not made right with God by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be declared right with him by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. For the, by works of the law, by self-effort, by your morality and obedience, in other words, he's saying, no flesh, no man, no woman shall be declared right, justified with God. My point is simple, friend. I'm inviting someone here today as we kick off this kind of thought. So I wonder where you've centered 
And who is the object of your faith? Is your faith in your own ability? Is your faith in your own gifting? Is your faith in your own resolve or conviction to do what is good and to do what is holy, to do what is right? Or have you put that and made Jesus the object of your affection? Have you made him the one in whom you have put your faith and your trust in? Because the reality is, friend, it's Bible declares it that it is him who has done the work of God. It's, the Bible says he is the one. John 6, 29. But he, uh, what does it say again? Now I, I give myself a tongue twister. Uh, but what is the work of God? But to believe in the one whom God has sent. And Jesus was the one whom God sent on our behalf. You see, friend, you, you might be thinking several things right now. One, you might be thinking, oh my goodness, how have I never heard this before? How did I not understand this? I always thought that Jesus upped the ante when it comes to things such as the law, the Ten Commandments of what I need to do to get right with God. If that were the case, can I simply ask you a question? If getting right and being declared righteous with God came by means of the law and, and living after it, because that's like many people maintain this idea that the law shows us how to live holy and to get right with God. Well, it, it points us to God. It points us to our need for a savior, but it doesn't show us how to live holy. It actually helps us. It doesn't help us at all. It's impotent. It's, in a, it's unable to help us according to Hebrews chapter 8 through to, to Hebrews chapter 10. So my point is simply this. If adhering and living after the Ten Commandments is how humanity is to get right with God, then how did Abraham get right with God? And how did God declare him righteous 430 years before any law was ever given? Well, you might say to me, well, he predated the law, so God had a way of getting right with him. But he said, no, but everyone who comes after him would be declared righteous. If you come to God that way, that's how you can become righteous. If, if you don't understand what I'm saying, let me l simply read it to you. It says, Galatians 3, verse 19. What purpose, the Bible says, does the law serve? It says it was added, okay? It was an addendum, in other words, because of transgression, sin, Till the seed, capitalized Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? In other words, what he's establishing here, what he's working towards, and I understand for those of you who don't understand this language, you're not following fully. What he's, Paul is arguing with the Galatian church is simply this. Saying, if you can get right by doing something yourself, then how did Abraham get righteous earlier? It's like, no, God didn't do away with the way of getting right with himself on account of establishing a law afterwards. That didn't change the covenant he made with Abraham at all. And this is what he's trying to say. So the question he's asking is, the law then against the promises of God? Because God gave the law, does that do away with the fact that we can get right with God apart from it? No, he says, certainly not. For there, if there had been a law which could have given life, that could have made us righteous, Man, truly righteousness would have been sought and done and established by means of that law. But <laughs> the reason he says but now is because we know that you can't. The law doesn't help do that. But the scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Notice that language. Under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Can I just say something here for a moment? Kept under guard by the law. See, the law guards us, but it does not guide us. The law is a guard. It kept us, and it kept people for salvation. 
it held them to say, no, 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 you're, you're in need of a savior. And until that savior comes and reveals himself to you, you go, wow. And you realize you need Christ to save you. See, the law is designed to show forth your sinfulness. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 on, says it's designed to show and give people a knowledge of their sin. It's not there to show you that you're holy or righteous, to show you that you're sinful and that you're in need of a Savior. And when you're convinced of the fact that you're so sinful that you can't save yourself, what happens? You look for a Savior, and Jesus comes and reveals himself accordingly. And you realize that, oh my goodness, I cannot save myself. I've always needed Jesus. And what the point of the law is then to bring you to the end of your self-righteous effort and works so that you see and start looking within, stop looking within and start looking with, around and go, who can, like Paul says, the good I want to do, I do not do, but the bad I don't want to do, I keep on doing it. Oh man, who can save me from this wretched sinner that I am? But thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Jesus comes in at the point where Paul shows that he has no ability to get it right and do what he wants to do, that Christ is the one who can save him. So the point that Paul is establishing is saying that God gave the law after he made a promise to Abraham. Look at, and this I say, that the law, verse 17 of Romans or Galatians 3, says, which was 430 years later, given 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant, cannot interfere with the covenant that God made with Abraham that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Let me read that again. And I say this, now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he does not say into seeds, but just of many meaning, but as of one into your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that, which, that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. The law coming into play 430 years after Abraham was declared right, shows that mankind can get right with God apart from any law. So you say, so why did God give the law? From Abraham until the law was given, many people thought they, they didn't realize how sinful they were. They weren't even realizing how in need they were of a savior. So God gave a law to show forth their sinfulness so that they would have a revelation of the fact that they are incapable of saving themselves so that they would seek a savior. And when they did that, they would call upon the Lord and God would reveal himself and say, hey, are you tired? Are you worn out, heavy laden and burned out on religion? Hey, come to me and I'll give you rest and I'll give forth my grace. You see, Jesus comes and then saves them. So the law was designed to bring you to the end of yourself so that you see a need for a savior and put your faith in him. And I wonder though, if you lived a Christian experience so far where you thought, man, I need to live after the law. Even as a Christian, we needed to guide us and to show us how to live holy. Well, the reality is, is nothing could be further from the truth. That is the allurement of the law. That is the trick of the law. That's how many of us get trapped in misunderstanding why God gave the 10 commandments. We end up bringing it with us and it ends up killing us softly. Well, what do you mean? The Bible declares the law as a ministry of death and condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 and 9. It is a ministry of death. Remember when the law was given? 3,000 people died. But when grace was given, remember when the law, Moses came down with the Ten Commandments? Saw them all worshiping and he broke the Ten Commandments. Moses was guilty of breaking all ten all at once. <laughs> okay, anyways. Uh, you see, it says 3,000 people died in judgment of God on that day. But remember, and in the book of Acts, when Pentecost, the day of Pentecost came, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God's grace fell, how many people got saved that day? 3,000. So when the law was given, 3,000 died. But when grace was given, 3,000 people were given life and saved. Because the, the letter kills, but the Spirit of God and the grace of God gives life. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 and 9, there, therefore declares that the law was not a means of life. It points you to life, Jesus but it was a ministry of death. It'd kill you. And it's a ministry of condemnation. It'll condemn even the best of you. 
So my point is simply this. The law is designed to kill. When you bring that with you in a Christian experience, it's equally killing you. And we can get to that more in the, in, in the weeks to come. But my point is simple, friend, is that I'm trying to work toward a point of saying, um, well, what am I saying? Um, I'm simply trying to say this, that God gave the law, and the trap of the law is to think that you can live holy and righteous after God by doing what it says. No, did the Bible not say that in the beginning that God created two trees in the center of the garden? He said to Adam and Eve, he says, look, the one tree is called the tree of life. You should eat of it and you'll live forever. But the other tree is called the knowledge of sin. Uh, uh, the, it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of sin. It wasn't a sinful tree in and of itself. They could have made a tree for it in it. They could have thrown, you know, whatever fruit it was hanging off that tree. They could have thrown it at each other. They were just simply instructed by God with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not touch it or do not eat of it, sorry. For if you do, you will die. Now, there's a whole story there, but let's just condense the story for a moment. The devil comes in to play in this story of Adam and Eve. And this is how the whole world was deceived and sinning because the first two people fell into sin and therefore everyone Again, because of one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. So the point is simply this, is that the, the devil comes into the Garden of Eden and he goes, did God really say that you can't eat out of any tree of the garden? Well, Eve responds saying, well, yes, she did say that we couldn't eat of this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Even if we touch it, we will die. Well, God didn't say if you touch it. That's just further proof to me that Adam was probably like really emphasizing don't touch it and maybe even made a religious kind of fence up to try to keep Eve from even flirting with the idea of approaching it. And so what happens, I mean, those of you who think that's the outlandish thought, well, how many teenagers live that way because of their parents trying to make up this like really like, you know, crazy thought about certain this, that, and the other thing to keep them away from harm's way. I think it was well intended, but religiously backfired on him, as does many of us when we try to add to God's word in, in with our, our kids and our teenagers. But the point is this, is that he says, even if we touch it, we'll die. He goes, you will not touch it if you, if you, you will not die if you touch it or if you eat of it. He's like, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Did you see that? And you will be like God. One, the enemy slanders God. He makes it look like God is out to hold back something good from Adam and Eve. That he's his little secret. That the reason he's not letting you eat this is because he's actually wanting all the glory to himself. He doesn't want to share any glory. He wants all the knowledge to himself. So he's just trying to keep this from you so he can control you and limit you. And the reality is that she looks at the tree, sees that it's good for wisdom and, and it looks good to the eye and it's pleasant. She goes, picks a piece off. She sinks her teeth in and she eats it. Now, I want to show you what was the allurement of the law. What did he use? He goes, you will be like God. Like God. Isn't that why many of us today want to live after the Ten Commandments is the same reason that she wanted to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does give us today a knowledge of good and evil? But the Ten Commandments. It says, who shows forth and gives us a knowledge of our sin. And if it gives a knowledge of our sin, it also gives us a knowledge of our holiness. And so my point is simple, friend is that the law is like, it, it was pictured, it was, it, it was foreshadowed, or if you could like, it was like a, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like that of a type. It was a type or a shadow of the law to come in the Garden of Eden. And the law, Bible says, that God declared that if they eat of the tree, they will surely die. Did you know that the, the same is true of the Ten Commandments? If you live after it, you will surely die. The Bible says it's a ministry of death and condemnation. Gives us a knowledge of our good and evil. It's the same functions here as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as it is with the law. And notice this. It says, when they ate 
what was the allurement is that you can be like God. And isn't that what draws many of us to be governed by the law? That we think that if we live after it, we can become more like God. Like God. God-like. God-like. God-likeness. Like, I want to be made in God's likeness, godliness. I think that the real root of why many people live after the law is because they're seeking to become godly. It's godliness is the pursuit, God-likeness. exact same as Adam and Eve. And I wonder if the enemy has deceived you into thinking that you can earn your way into right standing with God by your own form of godliness. The reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Adam and Eve were deceived by it, and you see the ramifications of that decision. Just look around the world today, and you don't have to look very far to recognize that humanity is incredibly broken. It is in desperate need of a Savior and needs God. See, the reality is, friend, I pray that you would not exchange God in exchange for good. Your goodness. Don't do it. Allow God the privilege of leading you, loving you, guiding you, guarding you. Allow him the privilege of inviting the Holy Spirit into your life on account of what Jesus has done on your cross to make you right with himself apart from what you do. See, friend, the allurement of the law, the thing that tricks many of us is to think that the law was given to make us holy, to show us how to live holy, and nothing could be further from the truth. God gave the law after making people right with themselves. So why did he give it? To show you that you can't save yourself so that you continue to look and avidly search for the Savior. His name is Jesus. And I'm praying that today, somebody at the sound of my voice would recognize that he has always been in heavy pursuit of your life, of your heart, of your, uh, 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 of your family, that you would know that he's never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And the reason he'll never do so is because he has promised to never do so on account of what he's done on the cross. He can declare you right with himself. And you want to know something? The righteousness that comes from God, according to the book of Daniel, it's an everlasting righteousness. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 54, which follows Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is where Christ was crucified prophetically. And Isaiah 54 then shows the fruit of what happens on account of Christ being crucified. And it says this, that stretch out your tent pegs for your inheritance, in other words, is going to be so large and vast. It's going to be, you want to have room enough to contain what God wants to do in your life, in other words. And it goes on to say in Isaiah 54, that as the waters of Noah were to me, I have sworn to you now that I will never be angry with you, disappointed, or rebuke you again. And he goes, and I will never allow my everlasting kindness to depart from you. God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. On account of Jesus, he settled the score. There is no more beef between you and God. God is not holding your past over your head. He's not holding you hostage to your humanity. He's saying, friend, let go of your self-efforts. Let go of your own works and trust in me and allow me to meet you with my everlasting kindness. And everlasting kindness is not a, con a, a, a kindness that has a contingency on, uh, attached to it. It's not kind until you screw up next. It says everlasting. This is a, a, a kindness that knows no end and knows no beginning. It's, a, a, it's a, a, an everlasting kindness. It'll never depart from you. And as the waters of Noah were to God, that was judgment. So he says, I have sworn now on account of the cross, I will never be angry nor rebuke you again. For as the waters of Noah were to me, so is this, I will never allow my everlasting kindness to depart from you. No weapon formed against you. He goes on forward in Isaiah 54. No, uh, no weapon formed. In other words, weapons will be formed. Weapons will be fashioned, but they shall not succeed. Why? Because if you were establishing your own righteousness, people could pick holes in you. But we're not here to establish our own righteousness. 
We're here to establish our hearts and the righteousness that comes from God. Your righteousness, he says in Isaiah 54, comes from me. Hence why we can now stand boldly before the enemy who is the accuser of the brother and say, no, you have nothing on me because I'm not standing here because I don't screw up physically. I'm not standing here because I don't have screw-ups in my own life, but I'm right with God on account of what Jesus did. Is there anything wrong with him? No. And so as Jesus is in this, uh, is, so are you in this world, the Bible declares it. And therefore you can live confidently, boldly, convicted that know that God will never leave you, never forsake you, that he loves you apart from what you do and that you are established in his righteousness and that righteousness is everlasting and it will, man, you are held within the grip of that. You are now a slave according to that state of being of righteous. You are a slave to righteousness as much as you were a slave to sin before. Come on, somebody, give God some praise. That's scandalous. That is a crazy teaching. And my prayer for somebody tuning in here today is that you'd realize this at the core of your being. Do you know that God's not mad at you. He's, not, he's, he's mad about you. He's with you. He's for you. He's not holding your condition over you. Like you have some kind of condition problem where he's thinking you're not good enough. No. You have a seat at the table. You're a king's kid. You're covenant covered. God is on your side. I don't know if somebody, you need a praise break. We need to take 30 seconds to go nuts on the chat, but you need to be encouraged. Allow the heavy burden of the law and getting right with God that you need to form, fall up right with God is a matter of not achieving, but receiving from him. He has freely provided the gift of righteousness to you, not the paycheck, it's unearned. It's undeserved. I've said it three different ways at many different times throughout this message. And my hope that today you'd recognize that love is all. You do not need to get right with God through a system of law, but rather look to a savior of love. You do not need a system of law. You've got a savior of love who now empowers you to live holy and righteous according to his good pleasure. He works in you both to will and to do according to his pleasure. The grace of God will teach you, Titus 2.11, to deny ungodliness and, and, and worldly lust and to live like soberly and righteously in this present age. The grace of God is going to empower you now, not just to pardon you, but empower you to live the life that God always called you to live. When you screw up, you can pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and know that you're standing before God, your relationship with God has not changed in the slightest, that you don't need to run from God now when you screw up. You can run to God knowing that you will always, always, always be loved, accepted. The Bible says in Hebrews, you can run to the throne of grace and mercy in your time of need. Come on, when do you need mercy? When do you need his grace? When you screw up, when you didn't get it right, and you can openly run, courageously run without giving second thought to the, the throne of God's grace and his mercy to receive help in your time of need. Come on, somebody. I don't know, buddy. If there's anybody out there at the sound of my voice here this morning who needs a little bit of grace, who needs a little bit of mercy, man, in this world of cancel culture, or the Bible declares that we ought to regard no one according to the flesh, where it seems like everybody's holding people hostage to their humanity, holding people hostage to their history, holding people just, uh, you know, in, in the name of accountability. And no doubt accountability is a great idea. I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. But it's never at the expense of God's grace. It's never withholding the love of God and the grace of God from anybody. I pray that we'd be a people who regard no one according to the flesh, but everyone according to the new creation in Christ Jesus, to speak who, the, to pull out the God image in them, to speak to, the, to Christ in people, and that we'd see the best in them come forward as a result. Hey, 
Be blessed, you guys. I'm praying this message will bless and encourage you guys. And the reality is in our next talk, we'll pick up from there and we'll keep going and kind of set a further foundation. But today, as we endeavor into 2021, may it be heard, may it be said, may a foundation be laid that you are right with God apart from what you do. Love is the fulfillment of the law, friend. You do not need a system of law to get rid of God. You've got to save your love. And if Romans 6.14 is true, then sin shall no longer have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. May the grace of God empower you to go live the life that God has always wanted for you. And may you see those dreams and those aspirations fulfilled. May you see God's help abundantly just working out and, 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 and at work in your life. And as you realize the good things they happen to those who know and believe that God loves them apart from where they've been, what they've done, apart from what they do. I love you guys. Hope you have the most incredible week. And we're praying and believing for God's best over your life. Come on, somebody. Spread the love. The best is yet to come. We'll see you soon. 